Ashley Beard joins Ennicom. Ashley is a licensed professional counselor specializing in working with individuals with autism spectrum disorders, ADD, ADHD, anxiety, depression, and trauma. Not only is she an amazing professional, but she's also my family. I'm so excited and honored to have her on the show. In this episode, we dive into neurodivergence, what neurodivergence is, and how we can set our neurodivergent selves, I'm like raising my hand over here, and our children up for success. As mental health needs rise, it's empowering to have the conversations, tools, and resources to help not only ourselves as adults, but also be more informed with helping our children and our community around us as well. Ashley's holistic approach offers an inspiring and accessible perspective to mental health and wellness. Ashley also shares an amazing intuition story, which we love around here, about how she decided to go from majoring in accounting into this specialized field. You guys are going to love this one. Let's dive in. Welcome to End the Calm. I'm your host, Georgiana Alexander. Ashley Beard, welcome to In the Calm, my beautiful cousin. And also, I'm just so always in awe of you. It's so good to have you on. Thank you. I'm excited to have the opportunity and to see you face to face. I can't wait to come visit you. And I honestly can't wait to see you all and see all your beautiful babies face to face. Yes. Gobble up their faces. They're going to be like, that's enough, Jordy. <laughs> but I love them all. This is going to be such a fun conversation. This is your passion. This is your mm-hmm. wheelhouse. You specialize in ADD and autism, ADHD, trauma, neurodivergence. You have a very personal story within this as well. I know we both do because I come from a neurodivergent background with ADD, which I later linked as trauma, which you and I have talked a lot about, you know, as well. I think it's so fascinating diving into these topics because they're so untouched. So many people are looking for answers, looking for hope, and they're met with a lot of conditions, a lot of boxes, a lot of dead ends, and not, I think, a lot of hopeful, intuitive, helpful information about where to even start to understand these places. So welcome, welcome. Thank you. As we dive in, before we even get into all of your specialization now, I really want to talk about where you begin with this, because it's a beautiful story of intuition and following a guy. And I don't even think you and I have, have dove in deep to this, but you went to school for accounting. Like you began with this idea that I'm going to be an accountant. And then you switched to a therapist specializing in autism and in these different categories. And then you have a son who is diagnosed with autism. I mean, this is, it just blows my mind, this, you know, evolution of your story. Mm -hmm. Take us through that story. Yeah. So I started college back early 2000s and went to school thinking that I was going to be an accountant. I really liked it in high school, doing some business classes. I think part of it probably was a financial piece, thinking that I would be set for life with that. (laughs) And I've never really been a numbers person, but it felt like, you know. I love that a lot, yeah. You you add and subtract. It's not that challenging. And this is tax season right around us right now. So I'm sure any accountant that's listening to this is just like, oh man, she's minimizing. This is not a big deal. <laughs> it is, 
Yeah. Thus, I did not remain in that. So my sophomore year, I really struggled freshman and sophomore year at school. And part of it was probably that that was not the best fit for me, the accounting program. But also a large piece was me becoming more aware of who I am, what my story was, you know, being, I guess, just this increased awareness. When you separate from home and you separate from the situations where there's been trauma and other difficult situations, I think your body uh, finally feels safe in some yes. way, right? And so it mm-hmm. it can allow space for those images and those stories to come to light. And so just very challenging times. Actually, what prompted kind of my journey into becoming a therapist was I sought my own therapy in that period of time, right? And to really discover <laughs> what is this meaning? and have somebody come alongside me in that journey. Now, same time, I started developing a passion when I moved over to a major that's called Human Development Family Studies. We didn't have a strong focus on autism in that, but it was probably a small piece, right? When we're discussing the development and meeting or not meeting developmental milestones. It's probably the time period too. They're like really... And during that time period, ADD wasn't even a huge diagnosis, you know, I right. feel like. Like, and then it blew, and then it blew up. It was a trend. Yeah. And as you stated about yourself before, so I'm neurodivergent myself, have ADHD, was diagnosed early in life, which is actually rare for us as females to be diagnosed as early as you and I mm-hmm. would have been. What age um, were you when you were diagnosed? I can't remember. Fifth grade. So about, about 10. Okay. Um, I want to say I was younger. I was about six or seven. Yeah. I think young. you had more of the hyperactivity piece probably than no, I did. I was not was hyperactive not? at all. I was so quiet. My teachers would say, wow, she's doing so good in her studies, but the whole class goes right and she goes left. Mm -hmm. Or she looks like she's busy. And then we go over and it's like, everybody's working on a major project. And I've built an entire village out of my lunchroom boxes, like, you know, just Mm -hmm. lined up on my desk, made little TVs and things like that. So I was in my own world. Which you're giving a great case study for neurodivergence, right? Right here, (laughs) just laying it out there for us. What somebody could just kind of walk into a room and see if they were looking for neurodivergence. So I I did have this passion developed for autism. And so I spent a lot of time with kids with autism my junior and senior year, and then actually moved directly into position at a school that we have locally, a preschool for autism that is a modeling program, right? So it has 50% neurotypical peers, whether or not they're truly neurotypical now looking back, right? And then 50% who have an autism spectrum diagnosis. And that began my career in autism. And then as you mentioned, a few years, actually after I left Mitchell's place, I had a son named Turner, oldest of three, and he does have a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. He was actually diagnosed about 26 months old, which that would have been since he's 12 now, would have been 10 years ago. And for him to be diagnosed at 26 months is actually pretty incredible because that's even early now. So a piece of that obviously had to do with my recognition and intuition of situations going on. So what kind of led me in that was at first he really was developing typically, right? So sitting up in general within the time that he needed to he, he did develop language. And so in my head, well, I shouldn't even say in my head, in my gut, and actually my sister-in-law who works with special needs population, she and I always talked while we were pregnant because we were pregnant at the same time that we had this gut intuition that 
we were going to have kids with autism. Mind you, her children do not have that diagnosis. Maybe neurodivergent. Who knows? Yeah. Um, (laughs) Very smart. Very smart kid. But so in the back of my mind, it was always there. And so I think I was constantly trying to, to mark off the boxes to say, okay, he made eye contact. He sat up on time. Oh, he's got three words now, right? Trying to validate myself that, no, 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 this is not going to be a thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then around, let's see, about 12 to 15 months, he began to lose language. So he used to wave as well. So he lost those gestures. And what I'd say is he became a silent player. A lot of times, even pre-verbal, so pre-words, we will hear kids when they're playing, little kids, right? So toddlers making sounds when they're clapping things together, they're making oohs and ahs and all of that. Well, that went mute as well. And that had never been listed off to me as a sign, right? To watch for. Mm -hmm. And so I obviously became concerned when the language was lost because I do have the education and know that's a big deal, right? And you had that instinct too. Yes. And even for your sister-in-law, like Mm -hmm. you guys, you guys were intuitive. I mean, you know, women's intuition, also, we come from a long line of intuitive women. So we're going to throw that in the mix. My listeners yeah. are well aware of those adventures. And so we, you know, you had that instinct and you were looking at all these pieces mm-hmm. and you were seeing this unfold. Were you finding people that were able to support you in that? Or was there sort mm-hmm. of like, you know, what was that? What was that like for you? Yeah, it's in. I love when my world and just crosses paths with people and then they're not in it anymore. And then you come back around and you're like, oh, this is why we had that connection when we did, because there was actually a speech and language pathologist that had worked with me at the school for autism and she no longer worked there. And I ran into her at an expo, like a special needs expo that I was just going to again for my own information. Turner didn't have a diagnosis or anything like that. And it actually may have just been like a baby palooza, you know, just kind of general information (laughs) about all kids. It probably wasn't even special needs. And I ran into her and I was like, Hey, you know, he had these words and now he's lost them. I asked, and I actually had reached out to the pediatrician at a well visit. And she was like, we'll give it six more months before I think he needs to have a speech eval. Right. Cause that's what all that they were looking at. That makes sense. So, So I told the speech and language pathologist this, that that was a recommendation. She was like, no, Ashley. She was like, you know, I'm I'm at this place now. I want to see him next week. We don't want to wait on this. And so took him to her and she's the one that pointed out to me, he doesn't make any sounds at all, you know? And prior to that, I had not thought anything of that. And so she you were probably so like relieved. You're like, wow, he's so quiet. This is so nice. <laughs> Yeah. Now, now he was not quiet at other times, like the car and at night, you know, playing, you're right. And he was a great independent player and you do, oh, wow, what an easy baby in that. And he was such a difficult baby, like colicky, reflux, all of the things that we can get into later on that that can sometimes signal. Yeah. um, We want to get into all that. Even if it's not on autism spectrum, I think there's so many interesting components of neurodivergence and how to look Mm -hmm. at it. So we're going to dive into that too. So we started speech with Jan who, who diagnosed him. And then she sent us back over to where I began at the school for autism because they have kind of this multidisciplinary approach. So they've got the occupational therapist, the speech and language pathologist, because what I 
haven't mentioned to this point was we had a lot of feeding difficulties. So mm -hmm. Turner had very specific interests. And again, this is one of those times where you go to the pediatrician and you bring it up and it's a, uh, well, he's going to eat when he gets hungry. So just keep on putting the same food in front of them. Well, that doesn't work because like he's not going to eat it. Mm -hmm. And you're talking gag reflexes. You're talking major, you know, throwing things, hitting, scratching themselves up. It's traumatic as a parent to observe. And then the invalidation when you're going to the provider that you expect to get some answers, again, as a first-time mother of what to do in that, right? And, and I so think for yeah. everyone listening, you know, whether it's the case of these components or whether it's something else that you feel in your gut, like for my niece and nephew, they had so many extreme environmental issues and reactions mm -hmm. to things. And nothing against all the early care providers, like they're amazing, but there are so many different possibilities to look within that may not be their specialty or what they normally see. And so they're waiting, you know, going through their protocol to be able to say, oh, well, maybe this will be something down the road, but they don't want to speak too soon. You have to listen to your gut. I know for my sister with her kids, I mean, they were having incredible responses to things like my niece would touch something with plastic and suddenly have rashes all over mm -hmm. and, and scream for eight hours straight. You know, it's like these reactions. You have to trust your instinct even if it's not so pronounced mm -hmm. because you as a mother are going to know your child always better than anybody could. Mm -hmm. And you have those gut instincts. Right. And I think, again, it's difficult to go against kind of what is mainstream in that, right? You want to believe the medical community. And I will say again, I saw an evolution of even our pediatrician over the years since then. At the time, she was not a mother herself. And I think that altered when she became a mother because so much of, of our expertise comes from our lived experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we start living other situations out and not just going out of a textbook or what we learned in our studies, you know, that, that alters the way that we're practicing. And the same applies with me, you know, as a counselor. And so she's, you know, evolved and, and whatnot, but we have to fight that, you know, we're gifted that intuition for a reason, you know, cause our kids don't have that voice to be able to know or to be able to verbalize what's going on. And so we started going to jump back yeah, and started feeding, sense. feeding therapy um, with the occupational therapist. And and then after a few months, to be honest, I, the speech therapist wanted to meet with me. And, and this was interesting as well, because I knew the OT and I knew the speech therapist because they had been at the school when I was working there. And so there was a personal relationship, which could make the following conversation very difficult for them. I really thought that she was going to come in and tell me, you know, Turner's doing so well. I think we can drop down to one session a week. But instead, she came in and she said, hey, we really think that he needs to be evaluated for autism. And even though I had that intuition that that's what it was, it still just flooded me because that was not my expectation in that moment. Because I saw the progress, right, and still was hopeful that wasn't going to be the outcome. And then we proceeded quickly to get an eval because I was able to do that back then. And then we got the diagnosis at 26 months. And that was another tough day right? Of knowing something deep within you is one thing, but then having the reality in front of your face that this is it. This is the journey that you're on, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's very different. So again, validating, but also sad. I mean, there was a lot of grieving, not at that moment, but that had to come as part of the journey because 
neurodivergence is not easy uh, in this world, you know, for you, me, Turner, or, or many others. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the world isn't built to support. And especially at that time, there were so many unknowns with what that looked and felt like. You know, there were so many unknowns to that road ahead you didn't know. Is he, is Turner going to be able to find his speech? You know, is he going to be able to adapt to new environments and, and learn and grow and feel satisfied in himself? Like there's probably so many questions. And especially at that time when I feel like a diagnosis of pretty much anything at that time, especially, and now it's less so, but I think it's less so because maybe I'm more familiarized with a lot Mm -hmm. happening in the world. Maybe you're more familiarized, maybe for someone listening that's never had any other challenge in their life. And now they're met with some new diagnosis of something, even ADD, ADHD, Mm -hmm. autism, you know, it could be any diagnosis in your life, not even on this conversation. Mm -hmm. It's shocking to your system because you have the mindset and of thinking, the world is idealized in this way. And when those things come up, they shake and tear that apart. But oftentimes it's for the better, right? It's to expand us. It's to help us grow. It's to help us evolve the world in new ways. And I think that finding places where you can find hope, and that doesn't take away from the grief and the shock that you're going to feel initially, because that's normal right. and it's going to take place, you know, you're going to keep getting rocked with each different step or phase that you go through. And you just kind of have to keep finding the places I think in yourself that take you forward. Was that what you felt with Turner? I mean, that was a hard road. And I would imagine even during that time period when the world was very unfamiliar with the terminology of autism or autism spectrum and what that meant, Mm -hmm. that would have been even, I think, more isolating than Mm -hmm. it feels in the world today. Now there's much more known. We have more programs. It's changing. And the work that you do and the outreach and really opening people's mindset to this, I think is, you know, you are a part of the the people making a difference in that. But so what was that like for you then? Yeah. So just the way that I work is, okay, feet on the ground, let's get marching, right? Let's, mm-hmm. what's the next step? I love that to, about you. <laughs> <laughs> to unlock Turner's full potential, right? So what do we need to be in? And so, you know, this School happens to be, again, a preschool, right? An early learning program. And again, because of the fact that I had been there and worked there and developed the relationships, I was able to, and I actually feel somewhat bad about this, but I was able to kind of jump over the line and Turner's able to get in immediately, right? That summer and begin. And it was life altering for him, for me, because it gave him the therapies under one roof that he needed. It allowed me at the same time to be pursuing my master's degree. And I had community. I was surrounded by families in these same situations. And we were there. This school is super cool. It has an observation booth in each room. So you can be sitting there observing what they're doing with the kids, which is very helpful because we want to be using the same language at home, right? To Mm -hmm. help with generalization. But that also gave space for the other moms who were in there with me to build community with one another and, you know, just meet each other where we are because you don't feel seen by other people. And you're still trying to determine, is this something we need to be feeling shame for? Or is it okay to talk about this with other people? You know, are we going to receive judgment for our parenting or are we going to get support? And so 
really helpful to be able to traverse that with other people in the same boat. And that's what I want to do. That's why I choose to advocate the way that I do and choose to continue in this field because I want people to feel like they have others that know and that can can be empathetic and can fight alongside them, right? And fight when they can't, when they're weak, you know? And so I am just as fire up today about this than I was 12 <laughs> years ago, much more educated on it than I was 12 years ago to be able to help, you know, alongside. And there's been lots of different paths. You know, I was at the state house um, five years ago, fighting for insurance reform alongside these other moms from this school, even though our children were no longer going to benefit from those services. We had aged out, right? But wanted this to be affordable for other families. So it, That's it, so beautiful. Yeah, I, yeah. I love that you really leaned into that component of community because I think wherever we are and with whatever we're going through as new moms, as you know, then coming across different diagnoses or as we come through trauma, as we come through just living our lives, right? Like in every other culture of origin, we are built on community and we're built as humans to have community and lean into that, lean into supporting one another. And I think it's so invaluable to find community and support in the places that you need that and to really step out of the shadow of feeling shame. You know, it's okay if that's what you feel, uh, regardless of whatever the case is that you're going through, but to move beyond that and find people that you can connect with is just mm -hmm. so empowering. And it's so beautiful that you all are coming together to make changes for others, even when it doesn't benefit you or your children, mm -hmm. because you see the value in leaving the legacy and opening the doors for others to make it easier for them. I don't know, again, how, how many of your listeners know about autism or or want to know the specifics, et cetera. But, you know, Turner is a unique story in this and everybody's child with autism or, and again, we can talk more neurodivergence in general in a bit, does not have the same success that he does. And I want to recognize that, you know, there are plenty of kids that their parents put in just as much as I did. And they were getting hours upon hours of services. They were doing all the right things and their child still is unable to verbalize, right? And, and their experience on the spectrum is very different than mine. Now, that's not to minimize, Turner has plenty of his own challenges and recognizes the difference within himself. And that's very challenging as a 12 year old to not feel like you have friends or not be invited to things, right? So mm -hmm. it's a different challenge. But I do want to recognize that when I have the space to say that, you know, each of our stories in this is very different. And a lot of people aren't going to be passionate about advocating because their story is truly a bit harder. And the fact that they're not able to see the progress so tangibly like I was. I want to dive into talking about neurodivergence and what that means. But mm -hmm. also to say, I mean, there's so many different therapies and things that are evolving. So mm -hmm. where things are now, they may change. I actually had a friend in California whose son was nonverbal and did, they went to South America and did stem so cell much. therapy. Oh, okay. Stem cell. Stem oh, cell. wow. And yeah, he, I know somebody that's was, done that here. He was not only nonverbal, I, I don't want to speak because I don't remember all of the different diagnosis that he went through. It was nonverbal. I think he had difficulty eating, difficulty with basic functionality. Mm -hmm. And he was able to really see a lot of mm -hmm. progress with that. 
You know, I think it's important to speak to this too with that mom and son relationship as of what they had to go through, of what I know that meant for her with her needs and her time frame and completely changing her work life and her schedule. And she was a single mom and all of these different factors. She found the joy and the beauty in that, in that relationship and could see the light in her child. I think that taking the perspective of just like you, like showing up, feet on the ground, moving forward, looking for solutions, and also finding the small pieces of love, even in the most difficult, exhausting moments mm-hmm. is powerful. So walk us through what neurodivergence is, like okay. in all the different areas. Yeah. So neurodivergence is really just a term we used to explain an individual whose cognitive process, so their thinking process and just various parts of the brain, right? That it functions differently than what is the norm. Okay. And I'm using the term norm as in scientific norm, kind of average base IQ, all of that. Right. Right. And so any processes that deviate from that is going to be considered neurodivergence. That is a fairly new way to describe autism, ADHD, and then other not stated diagnoses, right? Just Mm -hmm. you can know that you are neurodivergent and not have a diagnosis of autism or ADHD. I think it's important that people know that. The reason, and this is not something huge to get into, but the reason that diagnosis can be important when you're looking at ADHD or autism is really truly one for school services. So if we're talking about a child, right? right? And two for the child or the adult, whoever's seeking the diagnosis, if they feel they want to pinpoint the journey that they're on and Mm -hmm. be able to look more specifically at targeted treatments that can help alleviate symptoms or find a community where they feel more similar, right? Mm -hmm. I would say those are the two primary reasons to ever really seek a diagnosis. You know, if you're able to adequately function, it's fine to just say, I think I'm neurodivergent, right? Right. And just know that. And do you feel like there's any drawbacks to diagnosis? Like meaning, you know, some people would feel, I guess, limited by certain labels or things like that. Do you see any of that? So we all have very different perspectives on this. This is one of those things where you'll get a bunch of different viewpoints, but thankfully you asked me for mine. So I I am asking uh, for yours. Yes. I I am pro-diagnosis when it comes to neurodivergency, especially Mm -hmm. with children and youth, because if we're going to look at accepting everybody for who they are, why would we be hesitant to quote unquote, put a label there? If it helps somebody else understand them, then I think it's helpful because when we're walking around, you don't know if somebody's neurodivergent or not. If I walk into a conversation with somebody knowing they're neurodivergent, then I'm more likely to be more compassionate in the way that I'm listening. I'm going to possibly, if I get back a response that I feel like is maybe not what I would have expected, I can go, oh, perhaps I communicated this in a way that didn't make sense, or maybe I'm not going to take that tone. They're just matter of fact, right? They're not trying to be crass with me. This is their way of speaking. So it removes some emotional ability when we're listening, if we know that, but it is a hot topic. I was just, I was curious because honestly, I don't like, I could just imagine that for some people, maybe they have reservations about labeling something, right? Personally, I agree with you. I think it's really helpful 
there are services. I know even, I mean, I grew up in a very different time period, you know, like when, when I was diagnosed, but it was actually really helpful in college because mm -hmm. I could lean into private testing rooms where mm -hmm. I had just a quiet space to think. For me, actually being so empathic, which really, you know, wasn't something at that time that was ever associated to ADD mm -hmm. or, you know, like that was just like not even on the topic of conversation. Mm -hmm. But being so sensitive to other people's thoughts and emotions and energy, it was so nice to be able to go into a private testing room and I wouldn't have been able to have that in university had I not had that diagnosis. I was pretty high functioning ADD. I mean, I did take Ritalin and Adderall, which I had love-hate with. It was a whole mm -hmm. other... That's a whole other conversation. I know it's hot topic now as well because there are a lot of downsides to different medications, but you kind of have to outweigh the pros and the cons. Yep. At that time, I it would be the difference for me of taking Ritalin and being able to make straight A's with ease, with yep. absolute ease to not being on medication, being so... Now I understand I was so overstimulated by all of the information I was getting all the subtleties of other people's emotions, energy, thoughts, feelings, just even in, in a singular room, that it's almost like my brain couldn't even focus on one second of a thought in front of me because it was just too overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And so being able to focus in on that was really helpful. I was able to actually wean myself off of Adderall later in life and then recognize, okay, I need to learn how to hone this focus of energy. For me, it was dealing with trauma. For me, it was unpacking a lot of the emotional suppression that was keeping me locked out of my own mind. And I had to work through a process of healing that. But that diagnosis got me through college and got me through with, with almost straight A's. You know, I was able to tap into my potential. Mm -hmm. And listen, I wish that the system wasn't the way it was, right? I wish that we didn't expect kids to sit in a seat for eight hours a day and didn't expect that five-year-olds aren't going to speak out of turn or blurt out an answer when they're <laughs> excited or wiggle around when they're on carpets and don't have defined boundaries. They're touching other people, right? I wish that we had a recognition that that's normative yeah. development. And even so, it's also not always normal normative development, right? There is neurodivergence. And I, I've seen over the years, there, there is trends moving away from that, even flexible seating in the classroom, right? Where they have higher desks and exercise balls to sit on. Even in my time in practice, the ability to take in a fidget used to require a letter from me. And it was a huge deal for an individual to take any kind of fidget, even if it didn't make a noise, right? Mm -hmm. And now it's just widely accepted and they have them in there for everybody, many classrooms, right? So I think we're moving towards the acknowledgement, which is great because one in 36 individuals now has a diagnosis of autism and that's only autism, right? It's not including other neurodivergencies. Mm -hmm. So we are talking about a large percentage of the population is now neurodivergent or being recognized as neurodivergent. So there's going to be some trouble in schools <laughs> if teachers <laughs> don't start recognizing that. And I shouldn't say the teachers. The teachers very much often recognize that it's the constraints of administration. The structure right? of everything. And let's talk about that because I know we're both hugely passionate about going back in history and looking at the way our education structures were built. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So we talk about institution. Yeah. Over institution. So, so schools, I don't know how many people are familiar with this, but if you think about years and years ago, so early 1900s, children were working 
working, working hard labor, right? Not just in the fields, but also in factories. Mm-hmm. And so much of what we still see in other countries, right? Like India and others that that utilize more of the child labor. That's what America looked like back in the early 1900s, late 1800s. And so when schools started to be developed, they were modeled after factories because that's what adults knew to be the environment that children could be successful or productive is probably a better word than success there, productive. Mm-hmm. In. And that's really, that's why if you go in a school, even to this day, what do we have? Cement walls. Nobody <laughs> has a have home with walls? cement walls. <laughs> right? Hospitals rarely even have cement walls. Now I was inpatient behavioral health at our local children's hospital and we have cement walls, <laughs> but the other parts of the hospital don't, right? So it is very much built off of this factory institutionalized environment. And we know through so much more research now that that is not the way that brains function, especially in kids. And even as adults, we would not be able to be productive or successful if we were sitting in a school. I guarantee you or me at this point, if I was conducting sessions, I would not be the same person that I am in my home-like setting of an office when I'm doing sessions, you know? And, And that's important to look at. Is it neurodivergence or is it normative development? And it's just the environment is not appropriate. Right. You know, and that gets tricky. That's that's really the question I have too, is because we we are evolving so much. I mean, mm-hmm. even when we look back at the 1900s, I mean, if you look at children's nurseries, they would think, oh, we would never put our children in what was considered fun environment for a child, right? Yeah. It was dark and damp and like just so depressing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now we have all the comforts and all the love and the warmth and we em- embrace our awareness and embody getting to love and nurture in our family mm-hmm. environments, right? Like that's mm-hmm. our goals. That's what we're showing up for. Mm-hmm. And so there is this crossroads, I think, for schools. And even now I know a lot of the kids' schools are having mindfulness times and mm-hmm. yoga and breath work, which is so cool because these components of wellness, they really do activate our systems and our learning and our intelligence. You know, when we think back to the times of Plato and, you know, these Mm -hmm. great, these great cultures of learning in ancient times, they would sit outside for hours, sit out on the grass, grounding themselves under a tree, you know, and listening and questioning what life looked like. So we're not meant to be in cement blocks at boxes, you know, forced to sit still for eight hours a day without moving and then wondering why, you know, kids pee themselves or, you know, have a hard time sitting still. Right. And there's so many different factors. I love that you've talked about that as some of the education systems, like if some, if there's a school that is so very rigid in that environment still, that can actually create trauma response coming out of school for so many kids. And and I feel like that's even the truth for you know, universities. I've been, I've been in places like in school systems that are very well known of pumping kids out to go to Ivy schools. The pressure that those kids were under, mm-hmm. the circumstances that they were learning. I would have broken a million times and I love learning. I love sitting for hours and absorbing and taking in and learning. So just seeing that in what those school systems that were some of the most prestigious and expensive schools in the country, what that environment was like was really eye-opening to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and one thing, Georgie, that I did want to mention about neurodivergence that I didn't say earlier was typically what we know about it is from birth. 
you you're essentially born with a neurodivergent brain, right? So genetic neurodivergency, right? So I'm not speaking autism specifically. So it's kind of that predisposition. So you you kind of burst with neurodivergence, and then and then perhaps there's environmental, et cetera. We don't know yet, right? Right. That that gets us more specifically to have autistic traits and not just neurodivergency, because there is a difference. But trauma can actually create neurodivergency. And that's why we see at times a misdiagnosis. And it's not always a misdiagnosis, right? You can have trauma and have ADHD, but we do at times see a misdiagnosis in kids that actually have trauma and we don't know that they have trauma because Mm -hmm. the symptomology looks so similar in ADHD and trauma response. But just knowing that, that, you know, Emotional, physical, sexual trauma can change the brain so much that you now have a neurodivergent brain is just baffling. It's um, so incredible. That's that was actually my my case is, you know, I feel like my neurodivergence or the ADD mm-hmm. diagnosis really did come from early childhood trauma, you know, sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about that is with the ADD diagnosis, my mom was really proactive in getting, you know, different specializations, like going into like therapists and like mm-hmm. getting testing for that. Mm-hmm. And you guys listening, like this was, this was like in the eighties. So like this was mm-hmm. so out there for her to be like, no, but I feel like there's a better answer. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I just remember all of these, I was like five or so, like going into all these testing rooms and I would read the reports later as an adult of what all they would say. And it was so fascinating to me because I'm like, it's so incredible how they missed the elephant in the room, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. how do you, because they just didn't know, like they could see all of these symptoms but they, nobody at that time wanted to call out and like bring up to you know, the person bringing them in for they're like, hey, so have you considered that there might be a, a history of, of sexual abuse here? You know, like you, that would be a really hard conversation for family of a four-year-old. And so it wasn't, it wasn't discussed, but it was in the notes. And so I find that fascinating. And I'm curious about the way that our diagnoses will evolve over time as we begin to really look at the underlying root causes of our environment, of what's happening. And I know you have talked about this as well. You and I have talked about that sometimes it can be normal development. And as you said, in genetics, like you might be predisposed for neurodivergence, but then there might be a toxin overload Mm -hmm. that occurs that can really trigger that response. Yeah. And and I will caveat what, you know, we have evolved in our understanding of trauma and, and that number, nobody quote me on this, but I am pretty sure that that number is one in three women by, by the point that they're an adult have, have, have endured trauma of some sort, which we can pretty much say after the last couple of years that collectively like we're all at 100 percent because we just have all gone through and that actually may be sexual trauma that was one in three i mean honestly the sexual trauma is one in three yeah it's It's one in three for women and i want to say one in five or one in six for men right just i'm sure inaccurate still staggering Um, yeah it's pretty less likely to share Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah Um, it's incredible but I think that this is, again, where intuition comes back in. So as a clinician, me recognizing that somebody has a history of trauma has much more to do with intuition than what I'm reading on paper or what a parent's disclosing or even an adult that comes to see me. I generally have an intuition that they have experienced 
some sort of trauma prior to them ever telling me that, right? And I don't say that to them because I never want to lead. Right. Um, You know, and so that is why it's so important that you mesh with providers and you keep searching and seeking until you really feel a connection and don't just go with, you know, who you find on on a profile online. I I think that that's such a beautiful point because I know, and I'm so happy about this, that therapy is becoming so much more normalized Mm -hmm. in our culture. And it makes me so happy that people are reaching out and connecting. But I, I do love that disclaimer, make sure you're connecting with the right person because I've had friends going to therapists that just felt kind of dismissed and discredited mm-hmm. for what they were doing. And I, I've actually heard that story often. Yeah. I know I went to a therapist when I was young. I thought, oh, I just, I think I was in seventh grade and I told my mom, I feel like I need a therapist. And she was like, oh, okay, if you need that, then that's great. But we went to someone who I did, I couldn't trust. I could sense I couldn't trust. And I didn't even know, I couldn't even pinpoint what I would want to say to the person, but I could just very much tell that that was not the place for me to be open, share what I had to say and my thoughts and feelings and what I was going through with some difficulties at the time. And so there really wasn't that safe place. I ended up just taking my guitar in and singing songs the whole time. And avoiding basically any real conversation. But there have been circumstances where I've seen with other people and other friends where they'd connect with people in therapy that actually became detrimental to their wellness. It actually re-triggered trauma or dismissed what they were feeling or what they had gone through or, you know, they were put on medications they really didn't need to be on. There were just a lot of factors for that. So trust your instinct with who you're showing up for. I love that you brought that up because it is important to really mesh with who you're talking to and feel that you are in a safe space to, to be where you are. Kind of jumping back to neurodivergence. Maybe if you could distinguish between what it could look like in kids and also even Mm -hmm. in adults, because Mm -hmm. a lot of people actually sense going through the pandemic are now unearthing old patterns and traumas and things like that, or new traumas that maybe have created neurodivergence, you know, so what does, what does that look like for both, both sides of that coin? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to go over some general things that we know about neurodivergence and we'll specify if it looks different in children or adults and, and possibly give some examples for those. Okay. So social and communication skills um, would be kind of the primary and and one that most people recognize when they think neurodivergence, right? So poor eye contact. I do want to stop there and focus on that for a second. So plenty of people who are neurodivergent can make eye contact, right? My son with autism has learned how to make eye contact. This is a huge point for me to make because at two or three years old, when it comes to neurodivergency or diagnoses we might be looking at, we would be looking, do they have eye contact? Do they just have fleeting eye contact where they're making quick glances at you? Or do they have sustained eye contact, which is what we want, right? Well, you can, you can go to a child who's 11 who winds up with an autism diagnosis that's never been diagnosed before and has never had specific targeted treatment. That child at 11, generally speaking, has learned the capability to make sustained eye contact, okay? So a lot of people think, no, not a deal. If I can make eye contact, I'm fine. Or it must not be what I think it is because 
I'm making eye contact. No. So thinking about how do you feel when you're making eye contact with somebody? Are you Mm. avoiding? Are you looking somewhere else on the face? To be honest with you, when I am making eye contact, I am not making eye contact. I will occasionally, (laughs) I will occasionally make eye contact, especially if it's somebody unfamiliar to me or somebody I've not been in relationship with for a long time. I'm generally going to fake them out on this and look right here on the bridge of the nose. Yes. Yes. And, and part of that is because I get overwhelmed by the sensory experience that I have when I look into somebody else's eyes. And then it makes it more difficult for me to continue speaking on whatever subject I'm speaking. So that's a huge one. Okay. Mm, I get that too, actually. I mean, like I'm actually very good at eye contact, but I do lose my thoughts sometimes. I'm like, wait, I got lost in like all your emotions, all your, you know, like I'm feeling the sensory of all their other stuff going on or the Mm -hmm. stuff in the room or my own thoughts or insecurities or um, anxiety or any of that stuff. That's interesting. I'd never, I'd never heard of that. And again, you have worked to help tolerate the discomfort and distress, right? But you're still aware that that exists. So I also avoid people. I don't feel safe around (laughs) them. I'm like, oh, I'd be lying. I'm like, no, doesn't feel good. (laughs) Right. Right. And, and I don't have this on my list, but an increase in intuition or heightened senses is very much a sign of neurodivergence, whether mm-hmm. it came from birth or from trauma, because we do see that specifically with that trauma population as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So exactly what you're talking about, you can walk in a room and pretty much know this is I, that person's 20 feet away from me, but I can sense that this is not somebody I need to be in connection with, Right. Yeah. And that's, that's really interesting because I do think that, you know, going back to our evolution of that intuition and things like that, it's fascinating because you're right. It really does elevate us into stronger intuition when we've dealt with traumas. It it takes us out of a, I guess, a normative mindset or normative functioning. I know I'm very good at being out of body and in body at the same time. And, you know, it's like, we could just go on a whole other rabbit hole of all the different ways that that we move. I, we do come from, I come from a family lineage where, you know, the women in the family have all had an openness to intuition. But really, if we looked at that, probably there was a whole lineage of trauma as well. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> right. It, so it was built out of necessity, uh, not out of pleasure. It yeah. was necessity. It was, I think, being women as a woman, it is a necessity to have strong instincts about, you know, family, family raising, where you're safe, where you're not. But just as you're saying, I can be on an entirely opposite side of the street with somebody and feel their breath pattern shift and know if they're suddenly turn their attention towards me. You know, and I think for most women, we have that. So that's no wonder the numbers are so high. Right. So speech and language challenges, again, one that's generally thought of when we think about neurodivergence, specifically with autism. So, but thinking even in adults, that may be stuttering or repetition. So sometimes when we think stuttering, we think, so saying one sound repeatedly, but repetitive in maybe restating the same word over and over again, or the same phrase over and over again, different than OCD like mm-hmm. symptoms though. Okay. Mm-hmm. Learning challenges. So specifically, whether it's like a math or a reading, right? We think dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia, those are the the English math 
and reading specific learning disabilities. And a lot of adults, we have a lot of testing now in school for that. When you were in school, when I was in school, we did not do any testing. Mm -hmm. And really, I would say even probably 15 years ago, they were not testing a lot outside of dyslexia. And unless you had very overt dyslexia, still to this day, people are not you know, testing well for that. So that's something to evaluate if you're an adult. Could I possibly have any specific learning disorder if Right. If you've got this thought that I'm not good at math, like I said, I'm not even good at numbers, you know, it may be that you could have been good at it, but you didn't have the skill set, right? We're, we're lacking that. And you had a learning issue there. I just um, love that you're so driven and like you get your mind to something. I'm like this too. And we're like, we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. We're going to do it. And you're like, I'm not even good at numbers, but I was going to, you know, you're like, yeah, we're not going to be an accountant. Being an accountant. <laughs> like, so much. So much. Yeah, I know. Uh, Unusual response to sensory input. So that is where you're going to think about a child with their hands over their ears. But as an adult, are you able to tolerate multiple sounds going on in the car? I'm thinking about an experience last week when my brother was in the car. He was home from out of town and he's not around us a lot. And all three of my children, nobody judged me on this. All three of my children from two to 12 had a different device going at the same time in the car right behind his head. We had been waiting at the airport. So, but so no three different things. And I had the radio on. Um, <laughs> and finally he was like, Hey, can you turn that radio off? Cause there's just too much. Right. And I'm not pegging my brother as neurodivergent maybe, but he's that. also, he's also not around kids that right. often. Right. So, right. right. But that, that's not being able to tolerate the sensory input. Now, me as a neurodivergent individual, that particular sensory input does not bother me at all. I'm able to tolerate that possibly because of exposure, consistent exposure to it, right? But just recognizing that is, is it difficult for you to go into Walmart or some other large store because of the lighting? Um, mm -hmm. You know, do you get a migraine every time this certain lighting exists? Do you tend to want the blinds closed in your house, you know? What about clothing? You know, things that are loose, do they bother you versus things that are tight? Athleisure has been very important um, <laughs> in the world of neurodivergence because in general, that that is a type of material and a fit that is tolerated more by individuals who are neurodivergent. That light touch, like if you think about jeans that are not, well, jeans in general, if they're tight are not a great texture, right? But if you have a looser Right, Jeans, which is we more of the trend, meal, and that. then and then they become tolerable to intolerable very quickly. Right, right. <laughs> right. So thinking through all of those, you know, and some of these experiences are shared experience of just humans, right? Mm -hmm. It does not. I don't want anyone to take from this today that because I have one of these things, I must be neurodivergent. That's not what I'm saying at all. So we're looking at a pattern, consistency over the lifespan, and does it impact your functioning in any way? Right. Mm -hmm. Because again, it's outside of the norm. It's outside of what this world established itself to be. Because neurodivergence is a social construct. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, it's putting a name to something that seemed abnormal to people. And you know what's so interesting about this is like, as we're talking about this, I mean, yes, does living a life and thinking in a way outside the norm of what society has been, is it hard? Yes, excruciating. It can be very isolating at times. Personally, I think it kicks ass. I love it mm -hmm. so much. You know, I but it's in the process of learning to love the way that you function and the way that you think and really embodying your differences and feeling comfortable to to function that. Now, it doesn't feel good when you feel 
you're up against structures or societal conditioning that tells you you're wrong in that or that it, it is harder. You know, you have to find the ways that you can learn, find the environments that you can go into. But I think honestly in, you know, in Walmart, like that kind of fluorescent lighting, who needs that anyway? Like that's just not good for anybody. <laughs> who needs classrooms made of cinder blocks anyway? I mean, we're all helping the world. Us, like all the neurodivergents out there, like we are helping reset the world <laughs> in ways that push it to grow in in more openness and more expansion. But I get I get what you're saying. I just wanted to Yeah. And to be honest with you, Georgie, you know, we would not have evolved. We would have never evolved. We would have not ever had a round wheel. Right. Because to think outside of what already exists in the world requires neurodivergency. You, Mm -hmm. somebody that is not neurodivergent cannot think of how to create even a table differently than what they've seen before. We wouldn't have Silicon Valley. Right. Right. I was going to say. We wouldn't have this technology right now without neurodivergency. So you, we, we would have never existed without neurodivergency because we wouldn't have been able to utilize modern medicine, right? So the population truly would have died off. So neurodivergency in itself is evolutionary, as you've already stated. Mm-hmm. But it's important that people are aware that they have it because one, we have to attack the shame and the stigma of it, right? Yes. Because it still yes. is. That's why with autism, with the campaigns now have moved from awareness to acceptance, I still think awareness needs to exist because a lot of people aren't still knowledgeable on it, right? But the acceptance piece of, okay, we know, we're aware that it exists. Now let's be inclusive and not cast out. Let's make it all just this way. As you're speaking, like, let's change the lighting for everybody. Let's change the classrooms because everybody would benefit. Right. And that is, that's what we're proactively working towards, acknowledging that everyone is not going to be neurodivergent, but in general, all of the treatments, all of the therapies would benefit a neurotypical individual even more so than a neurodivergent <laughs> individual, you know? I love that. I, I love that. Yeah. It is incredible to break that stigma around what this means. Mm-hmm. And that's why... I don't want to, in saying this, discredit anybody's journey of the challenges that it takes to go through, whether it's your mom and you're doing this with your child, whether it's you as the adult. I know my journey and my journey was hard. You know, it was very hard at times, but at the same time, I feel like I had it kind of easy compared to where it could have been and what it, what things could have been like. And that was because of the support the tools and my own personal nature of just looking at things in a way of like, okay, well, how can this be a gift? How can this be something that helps me rather than hinders me? I do think with every person, the gifts of who they are are so incredible. They may not function in ways that others around them are going to welcome with open arms because they don't understand, which is why it's so important to bring awareness of this, but the gifts and skill sets that they have and what they're bringing to the table in society is truly incredible. When people come to me and tell me because of Turner going through this and you advocating for Turner, then I talked to you and you pushed me to go seek a diagnosis. I knew this, I felt this, but everybody else around me was telling me, no, 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 that's not what it is. But because of your journey and your advocacy, you pushed me, I went, and now we have the journey that we're on. And, and he's speaking and he's saying my name, you know, now I get mom, I love you. And I got nothing before because you went through this with Turner. 
mm-hmm. you know, and it's kind of like greater good, right? Yeah. All of these different things that in everything that we go through, I always feel that there are gifts. And I say that not lightly and not in any way to discredit or dismiss the tragic hopelessness that some people are experiencing with their journeys and especially when their children are nonverbal or as you said, are self-harming or, you know, going through all of these experiences. I don't know how to language that information Mm -hmm. for them, but I just can sense that there is purpose in their path and journey, just as you've said with Turner. Mm -hmm. So it's incredible. Like we won't necessarily always have that answer right away with why did this happen to me? And also, I don't think that's the question to ask. I mean, as as a new mom, if you're going through that, of course, you're going to ask this question, why is this happening to me? But if we can shift that narrative to how can I be better in myself with this? Like, how can I take what I'm learning, what this is pushing me towards this challenge and use it as a growth tool? I think that there's always an answer of growth. I love this conversation so much. I know we could keep going on all of the different rabbit holes of just the beauty and the challenge of neurodivergence, but I really want to kind of switch gears and ask your wellness tips, you know, like wellness, mental, physical, emotional wellness with neurodivergence. You know, I know that you guys are gluten-free home. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have become toxin-free, have different wellness practices in their family life. What what do you see that's like really helpful overall? Sure. So so this will be kind of what I see professionally, but also some of some of the tactics we've tried in our house. And to be honest with you, we went gluten-free, not by choice. (laughs) Because as I mentioned, Turner has very much feeding challenges, right? So he still has preferred food list that's about five or six items. And when I say preferred, I mean, will not deviate. Not like, oh, maybe I'll try a cheeseburger. No. The fact that I can get him to try a bite of anything now is still a challenge, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was diagnosed with celiac as what was I. And so that forced that. Now, what I did experience when we began to go gluten-free specifically with him was a decrease in aggressive behaviors and an increase in social communicative language. So him actually holding conversations, him being able to articulate better, attention increasing, right? And him being able to tolerate frustrations more. So I did see a huge benefit that I wasn't expecting. But that is why a lot of individuals who are neurodivergent or have children who are neurodivergent do oftentimes start with gluten-free diet because there are a lot of research studies out there from modern medicine studies to more holistic health journals that all support gluten-free lifestyle. Now, oils are a lot. I see a lot of use of, of oils within our community. Again, more to deal with the inability to settle down, right? So, Like oils, meaning? Sorry, like essential oils. Essential oils, sort. got it. Yes. Whether that's topical or diffuse because of the restlessness that often comes with neurodivergence, right? From that sensory overload, like we've talked about. You know, I will say just as a counselor, always before we can get to the mental health, the emotional well-being, we always have to meet the physical needs first. So prioritizing a well-balanced diet, whether or not it's gluten-free, 
or not, right? Making sure you're really looking at the nutrients that you're fueling your body with and thinking of it as that fuel for your body. And then exercise is so important. As kids, they generally get a fair amount of exercise at school, et cetera. But as adults, we live quite a sedentary lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And so I see a lot of neurodivergent adults honestly, in practice, who when we start just integrating, honestly, a 20-minute walk a day, there is a complete shift in attention. There's a shift in overall mood, which is probably not that surprising to most people. But the ability to tolerate the sensory input around them also increases. So that's really cool to see. You know, I've, I've seen a lot of individuals that have used elation I don't mm -hmm. know if you're familiar with chelation. Mm -hmm. Okay. I've seen that more often used with kids on the spectrum. But our but our listeners might not be familiar with chelation. If well, and I'm going to give my best. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and again, it's not my skill set. But it's, it's basically think kind of blood transfusion. Okay. Have that in your brain. And it's removing toxins from the blood and then putting that blood back in your body, right? So it's your, it's your same blood um, being filtered and then back in and is my best in. description. Okay. <laughs> you know, there's actually a facial, not to, not to go down a whole other rabbit hole here, but there's a facial where it takes your blood and chelates the blood like that. And then it puts back in and it's like used on, it's not put back in your body the same way as in chelation. Sure. But you take some of your blood out, spin it, like clean the blood mm -hmm. and then put it on topically. And it's supposed Your blood? To, it's called a vampire facial. Yeah. I was going to say it sounds like a good idea for me, but I'm not <laughs> sure how I feel about it. It's actually, I've seen it. And I bet it's, it's great. Kind of amazing. I mean, like you get, you get some beautiful really good results, beautiful results. But I mean, a lot of people have opinions about this or that. But yeah. anyway, no, it sounds that just came cool. to mind as a um, side note. There is more evidence now on red light therapy. And again, we don't have any hard studies for kids because when you're dealing with kids, it's you know difficult to create studies for that just mm -hmm. from an ethical standpoint. But red light therapy has been shown to help even with patients with dementia. So again, when we're talking about neurodivergence, remember when I gave the definition, it's the cognitive process, right? And so there are similarities between dementia and neurodivergence as well. <laughs> and so we know if it works with that population, it also helps in neurodivergence and just getting the neurons to fire more so that they wire together more is our ultimate goal with all of these therapies to settle the system down and be able to operate more effectively and more efficiently. You brought up stem cell therapy. Mm -hmm. Actually, families who have engaged in that in the U.S. because there is a fair amount of research going on with that right now specific to the autism population. And that's awesome to see. You know, you don't when you're delivering your child, they you see little pamphlets and maybe somebody directly comes in. I don't even remember. They ask you, do you want to save your cord blood? Yes. And I would have never known, right? I never would have thought with Turner. Mm -hmm. But ideally, you don't have to use your own, right? Because that individual you were talking about, I don't know if they used. They didn't their use own, their own, no. Right? Mm -mm. But this study is looking directly at using your own child's umbilical cord blood, but we know that it can heal like different types of cancers, et cetera. They utilize that. But I'm just throwing that out there to people that potentially are going to become pregnant in the future, right? Or know somebody that is, um, bank that cord blood because it, I mean, there is a ton of, of research that's happening in that field right now 
and just miraculous things are happening with that. And that is an easy solution for future problems that you don't even know may come up. That's um, amazing to to bring up because yeah, now, now I hear so much more about, about that, about cord blood, but you don't necessarily think about that when you're pregnant, especially the, as a first time, like there's so many other things that you're, that you're worrying about. And so that's beautiful to, to consider, to keep that in the back of mind or to share with friends. I will say just on a nutrition standpoint, probably, probably the nutrient we see kids more so needing more of is protein. You, mm. you think they get a fair amount, but they really are not. And without protein, we can't, one, we can't build muscle, but we also, it's harder to absorb other nutrients. And that, you know, I kind of throw out there and you've probably done nutrition type podcasts. And that again is not my skill set. I know just enough to talk about it. Uh, <laughs> but if we don't have certain nutrients in our bodies, then we can't absorb the other ones, right? And so taking a dive into that yourself, doing some research, you know, all of you as listeners into what requires vitamin D to be absorbed. You know, I think you have to have calcium to have vitamin D absorbed or vice versa, right? And then, mm -hmm. well, how do I get those? And because oftentimes when we're struggling with emotional well-being, it truly comes back to what have we fueled or not fueled our bodies with? And what are we surrounding ourselves within our home, whether it's the cleaning products or, you know, the shampoo, et cetera. Candles, candles are a big one that even people struggling with, not just neurodivergence, but even other autoimmune, like mm -hmm. autoimmune situations. Yeah. I've, I've seen people who have done so much work in every other area of their life to detoxify mm -hmm. and then still have candles just from a regular grocery store. And I'm like, what? oh my gosh, like I like go into panic mode for them. I'm like, no, put it out, <laughs> you know, get enough yeah. toxic, like go do yeah. research because there's just so much synthetics and like, and neurotoxins in fragrances and in candles and things like that, let alone so many other things in our home. You know what's interesting I want to touch back in on is that mm -hmm. you're talking about the protein with neurodivergence. Mm -hmm. That's something that is really fascinating. And I think for everyone listening, even if you're not even thinking of, oh, am I neurodivergent? How does this work? When we think that we just came out of a collective trauma, and how now on the other side of that, as we know in trauma, when you're on the other side of trauma, when you're on the other side of fear and going through all that, then you really drop into the healing space. You really don't do that um, while you're in the middle of it necessarily. Right. You have to kind of be in a safe space. So now that we're kind of on the other side by a few years is now when I'm feeling everybody kind of drop into needing more mental health support, nutritional support, like really kind of coping with that stress mm -hmm. and trauma. And it's been interesting because my inflammation in the body has gone up a lot post-pandemic. And there's a whole lot of reasons for that, even with the same diet, even with the same mm -hmm. nutrients. But mm -hmm. it is interesting during times in my life of high stress, I've needed to be more strict with certain things in my diet. Mm -hmm. And so that's a really interesting point that to consider for neurodivergence that, you know, that protein, that nutrient absorption when you are on the other side of dealing with trauma or coming out of PTSD or things like that, there are times that your body may need a different kind of protocol for the way that you eat and for the way that you show up in your life that, that once you're through that, you might be able to shift at some point. But that's fascinating about, I hadn't really associated that with the higher amounts of protein and the neurodivergence. That's very interesting. Well, and, and one thing I want to touch, touch on at the end of this with the nutrition piece is that we used to think that mental health was so much associated or 
neurological well-being, right? Which neuro means brain, but associated with the brain, right? Because of that terminology. But again, we continue to do research and I love it. I love that we as a people do not ever want to start stop learning and growing because we come to find out that we've been completely wrong because more and more studies have come out that tells, which I already know that you believe this, that gut health yes. runs all of this. So the gut-brain connection is bigger than we ever thought it was. And it's the gut is actually a bigger piece of the puzzle than the brain is in all of this. Right. Now, does that mean that it cures all of this? Not saying that, right? But when we talk about the inflammation, if we have an increase in inflammation, we are likely to see an increase in what we call negative symptoms, right? So those aggressive behaviors or self-injurious behaviors, mm -hmm. that's when we're going to be more likely to see that. Whereas neurodivergence in general is not really a challenge for the individual, right? Mm -hmm. It is when they're operating within a system not working for it, but it doesn't harm them to be neurodivergent. But the right. negative symptoms can be, and we typically see those increase when there's an increase in inflammation or other gut health being off a bit. And that's actually a whole other side conversation too, because what, what we see is when we're in avoidance or dissociation from the things happening, right? Like, like say, going back to trauma, mm -hmm. uh, we eat foods that intuitively we recognize shutting ourselves off from ourselves. Mm -hmm. which in fact cause injury to our gut health and well-being. So it's like this whole intuitive cycle of like, we're going to protect ourselves by harming yeah. ourselves. But if we can break away from that and recognize and have awareness for what is healthier for our systems, it actually does start to change mm -hmm. and support um, and also over medication. I mean, that's a whole other topic. Mm -hmm. But I know for me, that's something that I went down the rabbit hole with because I had been misdiagnosed on things and was given a lot of medications that were harmful to me that I actually didn't need that created leaky gut, right? And then mm -hmm. that created a whole other set of, of issues with neurodivergence and just being able to function and digest it. And so going into finding wellness and healing in those spaces, I can function so much more as a an, as a person just every day, like focus. And I sense I got off of Adderall and Ritalin mm -hmm. and then was able to heal leaky gut and heal my digestion and heal food allergies and recognize what worked for me and didn't. You know, I've never had a day since where I had struggle focusing mm. and also dealing with trauma. Like there, it just isn't in, it, it's not even a functionality of mine anymore. So it is really interesting the way that we can completely alter our, our systems. And I am clearly not a medical provider. So I am just advising that individuals, specifically if you have a child who has ADHD or symptomology of ADHD, look up the studies on what's called maritime pine bark extract. Uh, there are studies right now, increased number of studies right now, showing the effectiveness of that up against Adderall. And it's looking, the numbers look really good. Wow. Very positive wow. with very little adverse side effects. Okay. You know, because a lot of our kids do need something to be able to participate in the world that exists, right? And, and what was that again? A, it's you... called Maritime. Mm -hmm. I can spell it for you. M-A-R-I-T-I-M-E. Pine okay. bark extract. Okay. So that's a natural substance uh, mm -hmm. that that is shown to be very effective in this population. That is amazing. That is really amazing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, this conversation, I just feel like 
so much goodness. And especially for new parents or parents that are having questions with themselves about what they're noticing in their children, but also taking that out in, in, in adulthood. I think we can all relate to the things that you've shared with us and the way of learning to be more aware of different learning styles and different functioning styles of those around us and, and really expanding our awareness and advocacy of why it's important to support these changes in our learning and environment for our kids' sake as well as for our sake as well as it's time for society to change. So let's right. just shake shit up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you so much for being here today and sharing everything with us. If you want to leave us with one thought, especially for the families out there that are just now stepping into, say, a new diagnosis mm -hmm. uh, in any of the areas that you specialize in, what would you, what would you say to them? You know, take it a day at a time, but don't get stuck. Mm. Be willing to fight and fight for what you know to be true. There's always somebody on that same side of the fight as you. It's just reaching out to the community to find them. My biggest piece of advice to families that are looking at kids with some neurodivergency is social media is great for this, right? There are groups upon groups that are specifically support for these families so that you know you're not alone in it and have advice on what has worked for them, what hasn't, right? And then a quote I love by Temple Grandin, who's a well-known individual with autism, who's done mm -hmm. great things with animal community and the autism community. But she always says, we don't want to throw the kids into the deep end without knowing how to swim, but we want to teach them how to swim in the deep end. That's beautiful. Oh, I love that. I love Temple. Granted, what an inspiration and so well said. And I think that this can apply to any parent listening, right? Or if you're an adult and you're listening, this can apply to yourself, right? Teach yourself how to swim That's before right. you go into the deep end. Yeah. Oh, I love it. And I love you so much. Love I'm you, so, Georgie. So honored to call you my family and have you. you here. And you're always such an inspiration. And I just am so honored to know you and your journey because mm -hmm. I know it's not been easy, but you just help so many around you in, you in your wisdom and in the work that you do. So thank you for being here. Thanks for providing this opportunity for me. You're welcome. <laughs>